Welcome to Hanks for the Memories. You've got a friend in us. This is episode 18, Joe versus the Volcano, from 1990. I'm Mike Manzi. And I'm Joey Lewandowski. And before we bring in our guest, I want to say, Mike, you and I are out. We're on quite a stretch because this is two movies in a row. I don't think it's a stretch to say, after Mission Impossible last week for Cruise Club, this is two movies in a row where it's the best movie that guy has made so far. Yep. I know that streak's not going to continue next time, but we are on quite a roll here, and I am so excited to talk to our guest. He's been on Cruise Club twice already, but this is his one and only appearance on Hanks. At least, as, at least for now, one of his favorite movies, if not maybe his favorite movie of all time, we will find out. Welcome to the show, Greg McLennan. Hello, Greg. How are you guys doing? Thanks for having me back. Thank you for being here. Now, I know this is one of your favorite movies. Would you say this is your favorite, favorite movie, or is that going too far? Well, that's a loaded question, because I feel like whenever people ask you for, like, your top ten movies, everybody always overthinks it and tries to come up with, like, this really good, like, cinematic uh, intellectual answer. And I generally try to keep my top tens as just my favorite movies that I will watch any day of the week. And I think it could be argued quite easily that Joe vs. the Volcano is one of my favorite, if not my favorite movies. I always say that, like, when people talk about the quote-unquote best movies, in my mind, that word means something objective, where, like, in theory, all three of us should agree that X, Y, or Z is the best movie of all time. That has no interest to me. What I like is the stuff, like, the weirdo stuff. I don't want to get ahead of us, but I think this movie is objectively incredible, but is also subjectively wonderful. (laughs) I would agree. I would agree. But I think that where there's interest for me is the kind of movie that I will watch over and over again, that, you know, it's the Desert Island kind of movie. Like, would I rather watch this movie or that movie if I could only pick one for the rest of my life? And, you know, this one, so far, 18 Hanks of the Memories episodes, probably 15 movies. I know for me, it's my favorite so far. Mike, what about you? Is this your favorite Hanks movie so far? Yeah, and, you know, it's got to be way up at the top of all-time favorite Hanks films also. We've had The Burbs recently, which is amazing also. Yep. And yep. I feel like this is another instance where Hanks is, like, in his element in this type of story. Like, it's sort of a, it's a well, it's definitely a fairy tale, but, like, in the vein of The Burbs also sort of being, like, a fantasy at times and over the top. I just really love his performance in this. I really love what this movie has to say. Uh, I love the way this movie looks. Just everything about it. It's super quirky. Like, it's, yeah, it's it's amazing. You know, I haven't seen this, like, a ton of times, but I always love, love when I come back to it. Too busy watching Scout over and over and over again? <laughs> no, not exactly. I've seen that once. <laughs> <laughs> Although, I, I do want to say, point out, weird timing. So we have another show on the network, P.S. I Still Love Hoffman, Greg, where two, two of our friends watched every Philip Seymour Hoffman movie. Now they're going back again and sort of doing commentary. And weirdly enough, the episode of that that comes out next week on September 1st is Doubt. So next week is John Patrick Shanley week on the Cage Club Podcast Network, just totally coincidentally. Uh, but we were highlighting him. I guess, Mike, we might have to do a special shout out to Moonstruck, too. You know, give that movie a little bit more love. That movie is so amazing, too. Like Shane oh my God. is a Academy Award winner, a Pulitzer Prize winner, and just a gosh darn wonderful human person if you guys ever get the opportunity to chat with that guy. I sure hope so. Now, I think you had talked about this a little bit on one of the previous, probably the first episode of Cruise Club, and I know that you've sort of talked about the potential of a Tom Hanks marathon, because you are a programmer at the Draft House. You work for Neon. You work for that whole wonderful company over there. Can you just give this audience, I think, I don't know exactly who listens to this, if people listen to Cruise and this, or just this, or what, but can you give a a little bit of a rundown in terms of maybe the first Tom Hanks movie that you saw, you know, other ones uh, in addition to this that are your favorites. Like, where do you fall on America's dad, Tom Hanks? I mean, I love Tom Hanks, and it's like one of those things where 
Like sometimes you grow up and you appreciate an actor and then they become kind of a movie star for you, like before your eyes uh, sometimes. Uh, And I feel like Tom Hanks is just kind of this instilled like superstar that I was just born with. And so I think like my earliest memories are watching like The Burbs and Splash and like stuff like that. Like I remember watching like Dragnet as a kid. Like I watched like early Hanks like growing up in the 80s. And so I mean, I definitely have very, very vivid memories of Burbs and Splash, but I couldn't tell you what my first Tom Hanks movie is. But yeah, like Tom Hanks is the fucking best. We're at a sort of an interesting, as you know, we're at like a pivot point in his career because he's got a couple more that aren't necessarily classics. And Mike, I gotta, we gotta have a little bit of a chat later on air about Bonfire because I've been told there's there's a bold proclamation that I've been told, and I gotta so we gotta see how we're doing this. But there's Bonfire, and then there's Radio Flyer, and then there's literally over a decade of like nonstop classics. So we're at an interesting point with this movie where he's had some great movies already, and we've had movies that if you grew up with them are like unimpeachable all time classics. But a lot of these I'm seeing for the first time, or you know maybe about half I'm seeing for the first time and the 80s stuff doesn't always quite hold up and it's been a little bit better lately than it was early but we are really transitioning from you know early hanks was kind of hit or miss into becoming you know maybe less weird this is definitely still weird but you know transitioning into a less weird version of where he's going well the interesting thing about a lot of those like 80s stone cold classics that people kind of hold on to is like they are those classics that people grew up with and people can be so forgiving to those movies as they grow up but i think like kind of like the socio-political like societal shift that has happened uh within the past like two or three years in the world has started to make looking back on those things less kind Mm -hmm. just because like where you would glaze past like somebody dropping some sort of bigoted term or something you're like well you know it was 1984 i'm not saying it was a good thing but we have to accept it as kind of part of all culture and like what we were accepting of at the time and the language that we used and there's like that mentality where people can still enjoy movies but kind of just like shrug their shoulders whenever there's those weird parts by weird i mean they are bigoted but (laughs) in like the current landscape of stuff it's like interesting to see that shift to where people are so less forgiving of some of those things. Because mm-hmm. like, if you watched a movie from the 1950s, you would watch it kind of on its terms, regardless yes. of if there's controversial things that are happening inside of that film. And I don't want to be overly specific about anything. But then I think like the 80s are held through a different lens because people grew up with them and they have changed as people. And so they kind of have to like reject that part. Like, I don't know. I I think it's a real interesting dynamic that's like happening as far as like our appreciation of some of these things that had been deemed classics for so long. Yeah, it's interesting, too, in, in this day and age where like there's so much emphasis put on 80s culture and, you know, everyone's so into that uh, like retro style at the moment and everything, too. And like I know, you know Joey and I have had that conversation on the air several times where we're watching a movie and it's like, well, you know, it's just not uh, it's not holding up exactly. Um, and so like those moments have have sort of definitely come up more so, I think, during the Hanks run than the Cruise run. Yeah. And um, mm-hmm. and I think another thing that's going to change, too, is that he's going to become a good serious actor down the line and and early Hanks kind of finding you know what what he's comfortable playing was also uh, kind of hit or miss too because he would either go too strong sometimes on the comedy or like too hard on the drama and I really feel like you know over the last couple films he's really sort of found his niche and uh, going forward like we'll kind of be able to do 
anything he wants to like put his mind to so i think that's kind of the benefit of success and i think that whereas like tom cruise like kind of came out of the gate being an actor looking for work and acting in some of those more questionable roles that you're like oh this movie's not very good uh, i feel like tom hanks had kind of like he didn't have like that huge independent star that tom cruise kind of immediately ascended to to where Cruz started to become laser focused on controlling his image and controlling the roles that he was getting and like cultivating roles for himself and kind of just re-replicating those things and, and partnering with established actors in order to like put himself in that esteem. And I think Tom Hanks had a rougher ride to the to his stardom in that like he was making these comedies, but they were like, hey, we've got this comedy, get me that goofball to be in this comedy. And I think sometimes they were good and sometimes they were bad. But I think like right around this time in Tom Hanks's career is whenever he started to take control of it because he has had some success at this point. I think so. Yeah, because we had what was the movie? I think it was The Burbs, Mike, that we did where he was like really worried to play The Burbs because he thought he was going to be pigeonholed as a dad. Like, I think, you know, Cruz is sort of like this, you know, Cruz is in a, in a way kind of following the same trajectory that we saw Cage and Keanu do, where he's sort of the the manly man, the, the leading man, the action guy. But Hanks was more cultivating. I think you're right, Greg, where it's like he's looking for a specific kind of role or niche. And I think Ed, on one hand, knows he needs to adjust or pivot or grow or change or develop or whatever. But on the other hand, he's like, I kind of I kind of like this world, this little bubble that I've built. And I think it's interesting to see that sort of evolution over time because we know where he goes. And so to get from where he's been to where he's going to go, it's, you know, we're, we're sort of tracking an interesting journey as opposed to just movie star out of the gate, fifth or sixth movie or whatever is Top Gun. Right. And that, and like the whole thing with Cruz is like, that dude's got to be incredibly handsome all the time. He's got to be bulletproof all the time. There's got to be no obstacle that can overcome. And like those movies are kind of like your tenfold blockbuster movies to where he can establish himself as a blockbuster guy. Whereas Tom Hanks is kind of like this, like weird everything kind of person, especially now, like after you see like the breadth of work that he has, and I think at the time, like, he didn't have those, you know, out-of-the-park movies that were being set up for him. And so he had to make those movies work based off of his personality as opposed to those movies working with, you know, generic kind of blockbuster person. Because I feel like you could have, like, if they were lined up perfectly, like, you could have put Keanu Reeves in a Top Gun role and nobody would have batted it an eye. But it's a totally different movie if you put Tom Hanks in it. Yeah. <laughs> Exactly. And I think that it sort of, I don't want to say sets a, a weird double standard, because that, that's not the right term, but it sort of sets this weird bar that you have to hit. Like, as Tom Cruise, as that action star, as that blockbuster, like, you always have to be in shape. And, like, you know, a franchise that's near and dear to my heart, I've got a whole podcast about it, The Fast and the Furious, like, there's that, there's reports that come out now about how, like, Vin Diesel and The Rock and Statham can't look less than on screen. Like, they have to look bulletproof and tough and manly and masculine. And I think, in part, it's kind of from the path that Tom Cruise has blazed through the 80s, whereas Hanks does doesn't always he's not looking he's not the action star he's not the sex symbol like my brain just keeps going to like fat thor like dad thor in the new avengers where it's just like he doesn't want to have to keep up that perfect body forever like he can just sort of be the kind of character actor sort of but it's more about the what he's doing than how he looks doing it well how many times has tom cruise played a dad versus how many times has tom hanks played a dad or how many times have you seen tom cruise with a younger woman versus tom hanks with an age-appropriate woman Yep. And it's interesting now where we are, Joey, because we just did Mission Impossible, and I feel like Cruz is going to be locked into, you know, all of that for now. And and Tom Hanks is oh, yeah. about to start the era where he's going to, you know, 
with Philadelphia for Scump and so forth, like he'll be able to sort of disappear into roles and become characters and like, you know, you can forget it's Tom Hanks every once in a while, even as a security guard on the Green Mile. It's always, for me, even though I love it, it's going to be like, uh, oh, Tom Cruise as sort of that guy as opposed to Hanks becoming the character or something along those lines like yeah my last thought is that i'm interested to see in a couple movies after we do bonfire and after we do radio flyer if this is actually the start of phase two of hanks's career or if it's going to be philadelphia or sleepers in seattle or whatever we're gonna we're gonna find that in a second but to talk about the movie at hand to talk about joe versus the volcano the reason you're here greg if you had to pick and i know this might be very difficult do you have a favorite part or a favorite scene or a favorite line in this movie I quote this movie nonstop all the time to where it irritates people to where I'm just trying to think it's like through like my natural lexicon because I've been saying it so much that it's now just part of the way I speak to people to where I, I like I like I know like Lloyd Bridges saying like live like a king die like a man but like I really like the uh, heart on the sleeve moment whenever Tom Hanks is about to ascend the volcano and he's like I think you're great. I love you, uh, but your timing stinks. I made a note of that when I thought of you. I mean, I knew that I was, I knew we were going to be talking about this movie tonight, but I thought of you because that feels like the way he delivers that line is like the perfect kind of line that I feel like the draft house teasers, like that's the kind of thing that the teaser ends on. Like it's just the way that it's just like the farewell. It's like that was perfectly said, and now let's get out of here. Mike, before we get to you, I'm going to sort of piggyback off of Greg's and especially the end, the heart on the sleeve. I got to say, you know, we're doing this podcast for Tom Hanks, but I just wanted to talk about Meg Ryan for an hour because she is so goddamn good in this movie and i love each of her characters more than the previous one then she's a flipperty gibbet she's a flipperty gibbet oh man i came up uh, with like a whole theory about the three characters she plays this time around watching mike i have no response to that it, it was great yeah no I, I say i have no response to that more often than anybody would ever care to hear it uh but what's interesting and, and let me know if we're getting ahead of ourselves but like the triple meg ryan role uh whenever i had john patrick shanley out to the theater we talked about that and everybody has like you know these intense thoughts and analysis and all of this stuff and he was just like i had meg ryan and tom hanks in a movie and i didn't want to introduce different characters that didn't seem familiar so i thought it would be interesting if meg ryan played all of the roles but we didn't like but we acknowledge that they were different people mm. and it's kind of that notion of whenever you meet somebody for the first time you have an instant connection or an instant familiarity and it's like you're trying to cycle through what this means to you and the like recurrence of her characters as much as it arcs his character through the movie i think it was like meeting kind of this soul for the first time that he had a connection to and then every time like feeling like more and more to where whenever he ends up on the boat at the end and falling in love it's about that sense of going like i feel like i've known you my whole life even though i've met you two days ago yeah and they each kind of play the same role in his life and i feel like as he as he meets each one he's more comfortable with her whether it's just him being around someone and not being so in his head or getting to know that soul or whatever especially given that how big of a part the soul is in this movie yeah i don't know if i agree with that because i feel like each one of them and i'm not just saying like the character is the same or that they serve the same function but i think that they're all so different because of how and, and like i don't mean to sound like sexist in saying this but in that they hold up kind of a mirror to tom hanks to confront who he is at that point in order to tell him past himself like it's a narrative function to write these characters in order to create stepping stones for their hero in the film for lack of a better word you yeah, know i agree with that i think i think it just 
I guess it's hard to sort of differentiate because they are similar, but they are all wildly different. And she does such a great job of playing each differently. And you know, even like the sisters who could be or should be or might be very much like because they are related are could not be more different. I think in a sense because this isn't a traditional movie. Apart if you take away like all of like the Bo Welch designs and the incredible character actors and the wonderful dialogue and all that stuff, the one narrative thing that you have to have in your movie is a foil. And this movie is without a character foil. Like, there isn't a bad guy in this movie. There are people that are on the spectrum of Mr. Waturi sucks, but, like, he's not the bad guy. And I think the bad guy is Joe's own self-doubt and his own self-actualization. And it's a battle for him to regain his soul. Yeah, I'm not arguing that with you. That's what's so great about watching this movie again this time is like watching Joe like grow and rediscover life and reappreciate it because there's a, they just drop a couple times that like, you know, he used to be a fireman. Like he used to save lives and now it's his life that needs saving. And I just love his entire journey and his growth and just his arc in this movie. You know, I, I was sitting here watching going like, the you know, the, the three women that he comes across, it's almost like this three bears algorithm of some kind where like you know the the first one's like very meek the sec or more on the meek side the second one's very sort of very out there it kind of reminded me of julianne moore almost from big lebowski uh and then when he meets the third one she's like right in the middle like so there is sort of an interesting dynamic like that going on but uh i mean that's the other thing too is like just discovered how much you could read into this if you wanted to but also how much you don't need to and just like sit back and it, it just flows over you yeah it's the thing like i grew up like watching this movie on vhs all of the time because i was like shopping montages are fun <laughs> a lot of stuff, colors are neat tom hanks is affable and then like i don't remember what age that i went a year without watching the movie and then i watch it and then it like hits you like a sack of bricks and you're just like oh shit this movie's about so much more than that and then you start to like reveal the layers of the narrative that you don't necessarily appreciate whenever you're watching it when you're younger and i feel like you have to get to a certain age before you can start to appreciate kind of like some of these taxing life things but at the same time there's all this like other subtext and like film language that's built into this movie where like it opens with like metropolis and it has like these yeah. like layered a recurring imagery that whenever you're just watching a movie in like the 80s and 90s you're not necessarily looking for these things and then whenever you realize that the path that he walks to at work is the same as the crack that's in his wall which is the same as the lightning bolt that strikes the ship which is the same as the lightning bolt that's going down mm -hmm. the side of the volcano and you're like this is this man's crooked path and the crooked path is the human journey yeah and even like i had never i, I don't i don't want to be this i don't think this is blasphemous but I, i'd never seen this movie until last year and i watched it for the first time last year and i watch it again today and you know i feel like this is the kind of movie that even when you're old enough to appreciate things on a deeper level as opposed to just fun shopping montages and colors and stuff like that like there's so much going on in this movie that you're trying to get into the specific weirdness of this world and also i think just trying to figure out what's happening because it's sort of dystopia but not exactly and it's sort of here and sort of not quite there and well shanty's movies like live in this kind of alternate universe where the moon has you know ethereal powers and everything functions in kind of a heightened state because even if you go back and you watch a movie like Moonstruck, especially after you've watched a movie like Joe versus the Volcano, even though he didn't direct it, a lot of Shanley, like obviously because he wrote it, bleeds into that film where you kind of do get this kind of otherworldliness about it. Because it's like, if I told you that I was going to write a screenplay about a one-handed baker who loves the opera and calls himself a wolf, <laughs> you're like, what? what? 
I don't know if I'm going to buy into that. And you're like, what if I told you, guarantee you an Oscar win? You're like, well, you might be overstepping here, buddy. Because, like, they are. They are these kind of, like, caricatures that also are sincere. And, like, I don't want to seem like I'm some sort of expert. Like, I had the privilege of getting to talk to the man. But, like, he's like, whenever you make a piece of art, be it a movie, a play, or whatever it is, and you give it over to people, then it becomes theirs. But the best thing that you can do as the artist is not try to express what everybody else is feeling, but try to make your art a form of your own expression i think that this movie is just kind of like a huge bleeding heart on its sleeve about a, a man who's lost but has so much inside of him and, it, and I, I think it just really speaks to me in kind of somebody who's incapable of articulating their feelings sometimes to where you can kind of see that person find their own salvation it's something i was kind of noticing about watching it this time sort of more through like an adult eye i guess is just how he was able to sort of express emotion through film language and through you know the scenes and like you mentioned like metropolis early on i was thinking brazil or even david lynch and then you know when they get to la like it's completely flipped and different just like his mood even as like a teenager rewatching this or something i i think it's one of the movies that made me go there's something else going on in movies like i should you know like if i were to study them or something like that and like this is one that sort of lit that fire i think at times because of the way that it's designed i never doubt i'm watching a movie you know what i'm saying like he's never trying to hide the fact that this is a like a film and he's taking advantage of the fact that it's a movie and using that uh really really well and uh, i just i love the rewatchability of this whenever i was talking to him about like all these different layers and how like every time you watch joe versus the volcano there's something new for you because he is like overstuffed this movie because it was like he's like i want an oscar i made money and then i was buddies with steven spielberg and he gave me like the keys to the kingdom where i had like best cinematographer best production designer best casting people like like the credit list on this movie is insane and like he's super into production design and he spent five months like himself production designing this before he started working with Bo Welch and then did the actual pre-pro on it and what's crazy is like he would talk about stuff I'm like what is some of the stuff that I've definitely missed that like people don't pick up on he's like we spent hours shattering mirrors to put on the ground outside of the restaurant that has the volcano on the side of it whenever he goes on his first date so the concrete looked like it was shimmering like the water and then the facade that we painted on the side of the thing was the volcano that he's ultimately going to go to and you're like, wow, I never noticed that the ground was sparkling, but I guess that becomes somewhat evocative of the water. And then he's just like, and then if you pay attention, like whenever you, Tom Hanks first gets to the Tweedledum, all of the rope ties that are like the big like pulleys are in the shape of a heart, which lets you know he's going to fall in love. And you're just like, what the fuck? You put that much thought <laughs> into everything? You had so much time on your hands. Yeah, I do like that there are the, the, the more overt things. Like, you can see the volcano throughout the movie, but it's the little things. That's You know, if they do the one big thing, there's probably the things that they're doing, like you're saying, like the, the rope and, like, the glass and everything that... It's the motifs that come up and up and up. and It's just an entire narrative of the movie. Yeah, there's one yeah. part I picked up on early where uh, he's quitting, I think, and he picks up uh, Robinson Caruso, Romeo and Julia, and the Odyssey and, like, throws them in his bag or something. I'm like, holy, sh like, that's going to happen to him in this movie. So it's, like, laced with all this foreshadowing. It's really cool. Mike, what about you? What is your favorite part? I mean, I know we've been talking about a lot of things that we love, but do you have a favorite part of this movie? My favorite part this time around is the luggage and everything regarding it and... And just that sequence when they're you know, using it as a raft and it's got everything he needs. And, and even when they're buying the luggage, like, it's almost like they're at a funeral parlor or something. Like, it looks very sort of heaven-esque in a way. There's like this cloudy sort of wall with a chair or a throne next to it no one's sitting on. And then all the luggage looks like 
caskets almost but it ends up saving his life not like he doesn't end up buried in it or anything but i just love that whole part where he rescues meg ryan and he's you know dancing on the luggage and he's playing golf and uh yeah and then how it pops up again at the very very end you know i just saw another movie completely unrelated to this one but the peanut butter falcon which i think greg i think you saw too and they have a raft in that movie it's not quite as cool as this one but you know rafts popping up a lot in these movies i'm watching lately i'm i'm a big fan of it <laughs> now, I don't know. This next question is maybe impossible. I sort of, I don't, I don't have an answer for it necessarily, but Greg, is there something about this movie that you don't like? I mean, this is one that you cherish and could arguably be in the run, like you were saying earlier, for your favorite movie of all time. Is there something about this movie that doesn't work for you that you wish it took out or that you would do differently or anything like that? I don't know, because it's like, yeah, like Abe Vigoda and Nathan Lane are going for it. If I'm looking back on it through my 2019 lens, there is some problematic nature with having like like Native Islander people played by white people. Yeah. The movie at one point, doesn't it try to explain that, that those people are like from almost everywhere in the world or something? Like I remember, doesn't Lloyd Bridges go on like a diatribe about like all these people got shipwrecked there? There's a right away there. And like you're prepared because you're like, oh, the Waponies love orange soda. But then whenever you get to meet the Waponies, you're like, oh, this is not at all how I anticipated this film. <laughs> Even though I really do like the, like, getting ready scene where, like, Tom Hanks gets spanked with a fish while uh, Meg Ryan's having the time of her life. I don't know. Like, I think growing up, that part was one of the most fun parts for me. And then as an adult, it's just, like because even though it's a comedy and it's a romantic comedy and I'm loving the movie and this weird world that it creates and I don't think that this is a negative but if I were to like have to answer something I would say that kind of tonal shift to full wackadoo is sometimes like I feel like the hardest pill for people to swallow whenever they're watching it. You know we've noticed and we were talking about this a little bit earlier but as the movies have gone on they've they've still been a little problematic in terms of if you're looking at it from a 2019 lens like if we, we got to the burbs we're like oh the burbs for the most part holds up it's not offensive and then you think about how it's a bunch of white people saying that there's like foreigners in their neighborhood that don't quite belong kind of it's not it's not great they are bad people right well yes uh, but you know we, we don't know that to like the very very end but compare that to say bachelor party or say like another earlier you know like splash or something and it's like oh like this is way better like where we've gotten is better it's not great but considering this is still almost 30 years ago that this is still uh, basically the tail end of the 80s in which like a lot of that does not hold up at all and the fact that there's some questionable stuff but not quite and a lot of this is just driven by you know the charismatic chemistry between the two leads it's it's not terrible like i mean mm-hmm. you know could it be better yeah but in the, in the grand scheme of things it's not that not that bad I mean, yeah, I mean, you're asking me about one of my favorite movies of all time, so it, yes, it's hard to I get it. a bad part. I would say the only part that I'm upset about is that they get married, and he says, no matter where we're going, we're taking this luggage with us, and she promises it, and I wanted a sequel. Well, we got two sequels. They're just not called Joe vs. Volcano 2. It's called uh, Sleepless in Seattle, and then You've Got Mail, right? So I like that there's, there's three Meg Ryans in this movie, and we have three Meg Ryans all in all. So I guess we have five Meg Ryans in total and also the six because she's also the voice on the uh, American Airlines or whatever in this movie too so lots of Meg Ryan all over the place Mike I, I don't I don't know if I have an answer for this because again I'm just so like in like I'm, st- I'm not close enough that I can sort of look for things I don't like I'm still in the wonderment of taking it all in but is there something about this movie that you don't like yeah it's, it's, it's a tough one because I just like this more and more the more I watch it but I guess one thing that kind of I never caught this until like it took me like three at least like three viewings or something like that to catch this but um Joe works for what like a rectal probe company yep. mm-hmm. and there's like 
testicular prototypes on his boss's desk. I'm not sure what that's adding necessarily to the terribleness of his job. Like it's, you know, I almost would have expected them to be making like a widget, right? Like something we don't even see what it is. It's just like, you know, we're making a who's it, a what's it, a, you know, a, a Vugazi, something like that. I don't know why that always like, and it's right there at the beginning. So it's nice that it's like over with and everything, but it always kind of, uh, when the guy like pulls the thing of the petroleum jelly and all that, I just get like it. Yeah, I feel like I'm right there and it's disgusting and I hate that. But, you know, it passes quickly. And again, you know, I'm really reaching. I think it's just like, I mean, I think like you see this man trotting to work uh, and you're like, oh, gosh, been there, bud. And then like you see this like awful space where he works and he has like the most menial, mundane job. And if they made a widget or something that had a function, like you're like, okay, but I think the way that they do it with like the rectal probes and like that stuff, like A, it's prop gold. Uh, but B, I think it's like, wait, all of you guys are slaving away for such a fucking niche, stupid thing. Well, it's got like 700,000 happy customers or whatever that number is. Like, but I, think got... just, like, I think it's a testament to like how meaningless his existence is because he slaves away doing a meaningless job. And there are those jobs at every point of life in every company. And it's just the fact that like he works a relatively pointless job for a relatively pointless company. Yeah. And wasted four and a half or four years of his life or whatever, right? Like it's just, it's, it's everything is just out of reach. Like it's not the worst in the world. It's just bad. And it's not like he wasted a decade. He wasted four years. Like it feels like everything is like plausible. And I feel like the fact that it is not too exaggerated makes it feel almost worse. Like he didn't, he didn't lose his entire life. He just lost like the prime of his life. Again, like not making a terrible thing, just making a pointless thing. There's two things in here, and I don't I don't think that either is bad, because I think that they both are done to such good effect, but if I have to pick something I don't necessarily like, there's the one time, and I just, this is more of, I wish there was kind of more of this, but when they're fishing and he pulls up that clearly plastic hammerhead shark, like, it's so wonderful and silly, but I'm like, that doesn't really quite fit, like, that aesthetic doesn't necessarily fit with the rest of the movie, but again, that gag is so good that I like that. But I feel like it's kind of a way of montaging some wackiness into it in order to brunt the blow of going to a pony to where whenever you get there, you're like, well, I did just see a gigantic fake shark, so... As a kid, that actually scared me. I was like, when that popped up, <laughs> it scared the hell out of me. And the other thing, and I know that, like, this is... It's so beautifully set up by who he is. Like, everything, like, he's so well-characterized to be this hypochondriac, to sort of take things at their value and just, you know, he's so beaten down by life that he's not going to question anything. I, and it also sets up the perfect joke at the end when Meg Ryan's like, you didn't question somebody said you had a brain cloud, you can get a second opinion. But I just, I wish that, like, maybe there was a second scene where he goes to someone else to get a second opinion or whatever. And at the end, she's like, oh yeah, I, I know that guy too. Like, he's my dad's dentist. or You know what I mean? Like, like it's such a crazy thing. And I know that's the joke of it. And again, this is me nitpicking just to sort of have something that I didn't like about it because, again, I like so much of this. But I feel like somebody be told you have a brain cloud, something that nobody's ever heard of, to not ask anybody or mention it to anybody is just like, really? All right. Yeah, I, well, I almost feel like he doesn't have the opportunity because Lloyd Bridges shows up, like, right away, right? Like, he's been... But I hear what you're saying. Like, he does go to work and, and they're like, what's wrong with you, Joe? And he just says brain cloud, right? And then that's, like, it as if it's a thing and people sort of accepted it yeah. whatever you say like I've heard of a brain cloud so I, I almost thought that that was something the movie was making up as like a real disease um, and then like at the end the whole joke where it's like nah I should have gotten a second opinion like I thought that was great like I just that's almost like one of the longest like punchline setup punchlines like in film history 
the very nature of being a hypochondriac, like a hypochondriac, mm-hmm. like A, thinks something's really wrong with them, and then B, relishes in a diagnosis that coincides with how they want to be feeling. So if Joe is feeling absolutely rotten and like he's dying, the fact that somebody told him that he had a brain cloud, like as much as you or I would be like, I'm immediately going to get a second opinion. I have no idea what you're talking about. I think Joe is like, oh, what a relief. I am dying. And it's something that can't be kind of proven wrong by the, the by the normal person, right? It's like, oh, like I've never heard of that. I guess that's a real thing. The design of the film, like not just narratively, but like... Like, visually, I think you go from this kind of cold, like, blue, fluorescent-lit, like, soul-sucking work environment where you see Joe at his absolute most miserable, drinking, like, the world's worst cup of coffee, and then it cuts to him in his doctor's office and there's like a warm fireplace and all these like warmer colors to where you can get a sense of his satisfaction from it to where whenever he gets diagnosed with a brain cloud like he doesn't go like i'm gonna die and like freak out like anybody was he's just like huh a brain cloud and if robert stack tells me that i'm dying i'm probably gonna believe him i want to point out uh three other hanks connections to sort of different movies one we just talked about last week it's a movie that we have not gotten to in the podcast yet mike but when he's on the four suitcases to- tied together as meg ryan is recovering it reminded me once again for the second movie in a row just like turner and hooch it gave me flashes forward to castaway where he's just sort of occupying time by himself sort of acting against no one and being captivating right like i mean it's not as much of the movie as castaway or turner and hooch but like again here we see the same kind of thing yeah i was thinking when uh, meg ryan was like she's like this is my boat i i was thinking of forrest gump when he's like that's my boat lieutenant dan like he's gonna have oh. his own fishing boat uh shrimp also captain shrimpin phillips boat. has a boat oh yeah i'm the captain right. now man he's gonna be on lots of boats Two other things, when they go on the uh, shopping spree, which Greg was mentioning earlier, kind of feels like big, but he's an adult. Like He's just like, he kind of feels like a kid trapped in an adult's body again, like just by never having lived, right? Like He's just like, I don't know where to go. Where would you go? Craziest thing. You know what that sequence felt like? The deleted scene from Big, where they go shopping for his fancy tux for the dinner party. Mm. That's what was kind of crazy to me. I didn't have this written down, but again, you know, whenever we mention tuxes, Mike, I think we gotta, we're contractually obligated to mention the, the wedding dress store all the way back in He Knows You're Alone. Oh, God. Greg, have you seen He Knows You're Alone, the first Hanks movie? You guys got me there. I mean, he's barely in it. It's worth it, though. I described the first half as sort of like your kid brother's first horror movie. Like, it's real PG, and then it turns, like, hard R for the last, like, half hour. <laughs> it's really strange. There's two notable things about it. Number one, Tom Hanks was so charming and charismatic on set as an actor that the writers and the director were like, let's not kill him. Like, he was supposed to die. Like, let's not have him die because we don't want him to die. That's number one. He just sort of, like, leaves the movie. And number two, the thing that we've now mentioned, I think, on two or three different episodes of this, there is uh, a woman shopping for a wedding dress at a store that is run by, like, just, like, a heavyset Italian guy chomping on a lit cigar and just, like, what we can only imagine, making every dress in the store reek of cigar smoke. And that's, like, the prime wedding dress shop spot in the in the in the movie and it is it's wonderful that's the real horror in this horror movie is that sequence of just watching this guy fitting wedding dresses for these young ladies it's oh man i mean admittedly if you're gonna try and lure in a guy in the 80s if you smell like cigars he's like oh this this chick's cool (laughs) 
in in the grand schema or the scale or scope of Hanks, he's only probably in the movie for five or ten minutes. But considering it's his first movie, he's got a kind of sizable part. Like he's got like actual dialogue and conversations and stuff. But the the final uh, reference or final other movie that I this reminded me of is that when they get to the island, it kind of gave me a flashback to the end of Volunteers, where they're all around the bridge and there's just like everybody's there. It feels like everybody in the island, everybody in wherever they are for Volunteers, they're all together and it's just like we're here to see the thing, whatever the thing is. Uh, I don't want to derail us talking more about the movie and thinking more about it. I will say uh, the one thing that does bother me is that the volcano shoots Tom Hanks and Meg Ryan out. They're in love. They're going to figure their way out by living on the raft, but all of the Waponies die, and that always bothers me. You know, I was, again, I know that's what actually happened, but what if it, what if they're dead? What if that's their afterlife together and they just, you know, it's like some kind of weird alternate. Now they're, they've jumped into this alternate universe where they're off a drifted sea for eternity. And that's why there never was a sequel. Aquaman's going to stumble across them. And he's like, oh, fuck, you guys are self-partying down <laughs> here just to make everybody feel better about it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, in my dream world, that's exactly what's Pretty happening. Pretty much. A nice crossover. I've got my Tom Hanks action figure. I've got my Aquaman action figure. They're they're together. It's great. I like to believe that the Waponi have drunk enough orange soda to alter their DNA and keep them alive underwater. So I think they'll be cool. The bubbles keep them buoyant? Yeah, they're filled with all that carbonation. Well, there are people, like, there's that one pregnant woman who's wearing two cans, like, on her bikini top, like, just, like, sticking out straight. So maybe if they're wearing enough of those, they are just going to float. Yeah, definitely. All right, sorry, you didn't mean to nitpick. You guys got me. <laughs> See, we, we, we knew we'd get you in the end. Yeah. Is there anything else about this movie before we play a couple games and nominate this for awards? Is there anything else, any other lines that you, you know, that you quote every day that we have not mentioned yet? Or any other points or any other moments? Uh, I do that. You look terrible, Mr. Vaturi. You look like a bag of shit stuffed in a cheap suit. <laughs> but, I mean, like, there's nothing more poignant than, like, Tom Hanks holding up his hands to the sky, uh, looking at the wonderment of his life now and just saying thank you. Like, when he's, yeah. thank you for my life. And, like, him playing the cowboy song, like, that shit just rips your heart out because it's just, like, this man is staring death in the face and he has already accepted it, so he's completely fearless. Do you ever yell at people, take me to the volcano? Uh, I can't say that I have, but, I mean, I probably have at some point in my life, let's face it. What I like about this movie, I think a, a, a big reason why it is so watchable and rewatchable and enjoyable is that it's short. Like, it's an hour 40 and, you know, that's including credits and it doesn't overstay its welcome. I mean, as much as you want... A sequel i think that this movie is sort of perfectly it is what it is and it's kind of wonderful in that little tight little compressed package yeah it's great it's weird because like this movie came out and cost 25 to make and it made like 39 it was deemed a relative failure at the time even though it was a moderate financial success but it had mixed reviews and it's just weird to like go back and read some of those reviews and just be like what were you guys watching yeah except for roger that guy got it out of the gate, and then he showed this movie at Ebert Fest in 2012, and he played it, and he goes, the only thing that baffles me about Joe versus the Volcano is how I gave it three and a half stars instead of four. <laughs> One of the other podcasts on our network just covered Wet Hot, and like Roger Ebert like trashed Wet Hot. Like I feel like cult movies that sort of find their audience in the DVD market or the rental market or whatever, there's always, like I think you're always going to be able to find those like weird kind of people didn't get it because they didn't know what to make of it. Like I can't imagine being in 1990 and watching a movie that is this weird. Like I know that other things this weird had come out before, but especially compared to like what Tom Hanks had been in so far, even though it's been sort of wacky, like this is another level. And I feel like, you know, I don't I don't want to say that they're right for not getting it, 
it, but I feel you sort of have to, in a way, maybe sympathize with them because, like, what do you have to compare this to? Well, yeah, but, like, I mean, like, as far as, like, the Wet Hot is concerned, you and I like Wet Hot American Summer because it's full of this cast of, you know, characters, and you either knew who they were whenever they were making Wet Hot, and I was, like, a big state and, like, the Senate fan, then, like, and then a movie like Joe, like, I think that Wet Hot, if you were to be a film critic and have to evaluate it on its own terms, and you went into a movie theater under the guise that you were going to watch a narrative about a summer camp, and it's essentially a series of really, really funny sketches, you would ultimately knock the movie for not adhering to technical movie rules that your job is there to assess and evaluate and dissect. And I think why I don't think that that necessary comparison, and I'm sure there are a million different exceptions, uh, but in this specific one, like why I don't understand the Joe one is it's like, it is very narratively satisfying. And I think maybe it's just because it was non-traditional in the sense that he didn't necessarily have a physical person or a physical feat to overcome other than himself which you didn't see a whole lot in movies in 1990 yeah that's fair i mean again point greg i will i will i will see that point again i just you know i'm just trying to trying to make sense I feel like we're just seeding points all over the board tonight just because we're like, yeah, no, that's a good-ass movie, though. I really do like Jill versus the Volcano. Yeah. Mike, what about you? Is there anything else about this movie that you want to you wanna point out before we uh, play a couple games? I think one thing that was really good is that, like, the first time I saw this movie, I was, like, 11 years old, you know? And I think as a kid, I was able to sort of roll with it a lot easier than seeing it maybe for the first time as an adult or as a teenager or something along those lines because I remember this not being well-liked when I was younger. Like, my friends didn't like it my neighbors didn't like it they're like oh you like joe versus the volcano i was like well it was one of the first movies where i was like you know give it a chance to people i was like recommending it trying to pass the word of mouth around and stuff so it's great that you know it's found its audience you know that it's um beloved and that people are watching it and then uh, you know i'm glad to know that because growing up this was one of the movies that i liked that i just commonly knew was thought of as like one of the bad tom hanks movies and i was like i don't understand what's wrong with this so it's great to know there's nothing wrong with this movie and that yeah. other like-minded friends love it too. You know, just one of the highest recommends. I will say again that our friend who's been on this very show, I think it was in the Volunteers episode, if not more episodes, Christian Larson showed this at his engagement party. Like, he loves this movie so much that he wanted to share it with his bride-to-be for the first time in front of all of his family and friends. Like, this means so much to him. And even if not everybody loves this one or not everybody gets it, they're wrong. Whenever I travel and I stay at, like, a friend's place, I generally uh, try to leave a copy of Joe vs. the Volcano behind as a thank you. Oh, oh that's, that's excellent. Wonderful. Now, Greg, I don't know if you can do this. I don't know if you can imagine this. Mike and I have sort of drifted away from this game just because I think we got a little bit burnt out by it. But as you know, we have the Tom Cruise podcast. Can you imagine a world in which Joe vs. the Volcano stars Tom Cruise? No. And what would that look like? Or if not, is there another role in this movie that Tom Cruise could play? I mean, to take away any role from anybody in this movie would be terrible. But, oh gosh, why can't I say his name? Mr. Waturi. Oh, Dan Hedaya? Yeah, gosh, Dan Hedaya is, I was just like, why is he leaving my head right now? But I think it would be really funny to see, like, Tom Cruise, Tropic Thunder, the Dan Hedaya role. Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. I think it could be an extremely entertaining uh, Lloyd Bridges role. Oh, that'd be cool if he was, like, the brother 
uh, Patricia's brother or something. You're just writing a role for him? <laughs> well, instead of, I mean, oh, or if you, oh, I would say, oh, you're going to put him in, like, the Mission Impossible old age mask from the first movie as Lloyd Bridges? That could be He could be an old man. He can just be as successful. Well, yeah, I guess if we're, if we're swapping him for it, the age that he is in 1990. Uh, yeah, I guess all of the versions require a heavy prosthesis. But, yeah, I don't think I would put Tom Cruise in a major role in this movie. I think I would just have him be, like, a super-duper fun cameo for a section. Because the problem that we're running into is that in a couple movies, we're going to be nine years apart between Cruise and Hanks. So we're kind of losing the narrative thread between where they are. Like, we know where Hanks will be, like, in 96, but now for thinking about Cruise back in 90, you have to go back five or six movies. And this is weird. I don't, like, we're in this, like, sort of limbo and sort of stretching apart. So we're sort of in this weird in between. So now, on the other hand, can you write yourself into this movie if you want to walk on role a small part, whether someone who's in the movie already or someone you want to add yourself to, you have a dream to be in Joe vs. the Volcano. Where do you put yourself in this movie? See, that's another difficult one, though, because it's like, I would want to be the Aussie Davis role, but I would never take that away from Aussie Davis because he's perfect in it. But you know what? I'd sell him the trunk. I would insert myself somewhere in a shopping montage. Probably the trunks, though. Well, that's why, like, when we did, what were we, was it, were we playing this game on Keanu? club or was i just talking about it but like my ideal role in the john wickiverse is just to be like a clothier at the continental like i just want to be like working at the hotel like i don't want to take somebody's job away i just want to be like part of the scene but sort of in the grand scheme of things relatively unimportant but again having my own shop either selling guns or vests or whatever that's that's exactly that's my ideal role <laughs> like a peter serafinowitz role yeah exactly you know, or I guess in theory, I could also be the um, Lance Reddick, the the bell, the sort of the the bell desk, the head bellman, or you know, the, the receptionist or whatever. I don't know. Very important question, and I don't know the answer. I know that you're going to both probably have answers, gut instincts that are going to be right. Does Tom Hanks in this movie do anything that puts him on the path to becoming America's dad? Uh, yeah, I'm gonna say yes. Yes, I agree. In what way? Well, I have a kind of an idea. So for me. You know, at the end, he gets married. You know, they're going to go off and they're going to have kids and raise a family, hopefully. And they're going to hit some kind of island somewhere and, you know, be resourceful enough with all those suitcases to uh, live a comfortable life for a while until they get rescued. And, you know, maybe they'll Robinson Crusoe up a couple kids. Yeah, I feel like mine's maybe an overreach, but it's good for a podcast, I guess. But if you wanted to, like, overanalyze the trajectory uh, with, you know, relatively unfounded basis other than your pure conjecture, uh, I think... It is an interesting movie in the pantheon of Tom Hanks's career in that he was playing these kind of, and sometimes very literal, overgrown man-children. And in this movie, he starts off miserable, yes, but he is still kind of an overgrown man-child who has yet to accept his own personal responsibility for himself. And where he goes, like, being taken care of, being told what to do, being told where to go. And then whenever they get shipwrecked and he has to assume responsibility for himself and someone else and he kind of learns how to be the man that he wants to be that he's kind of on this journey for i think that that could be the birth of tom hanks dad i like that i think similarly the way that i was thinking about it is that he kind of learns a lesson that a dad would teach his son or his daughter like you sort of have to find out who you really are right like not only how to take care of somebody else but like who you are how you exist in the world what role do you play what part you fit or whatever and i think it's again maybe tenuous but i think that it could it could work i say it's definitely not a no it just maybe not a strong yes like it would be in another movie. But give him, let's give him the benefit of the doubt. I think he earned it. Now, the final segment on the show, the Woodies, the Tom Hanks Award. Nominate this for Best Film, of course. Best Role, of course. 
Also, best ensemble, yeah, for sure. But again, like every, everybody who pops up from time to time, whatever scene it's in, is just so perfectly in this world that it's you can't not credit the entire ensemble. Yeah. Do you guys have a shopping montage in there? We do not yet. Are there Are there going to be a bunch? <laughs> I'm trying to think of, of, of some more uh, Hanksian things. What we do have for sure is best dance scene atop of floating suitcases. Is there, and I, I don't know, maybe I'm missing an obvious one, is there a fight that we should nominate for best fight? Joe versus the volcano? No. <laughs> Their actual showdown? <laughs> it's true. I don't think he gets into a fight, really. Mike, you know in that um, great, I don't know the, the name of the series, but it's the art thing where you bought me the Paddington one, where it's like the great battles of history. Is there one that's Joe versus the volcano? Oh, the, the Scott C. Uh, paintings? Yeah. I'm, there must, there's gotta be. He goes, he's done a ton of them. Yeah. Should we nominate something for the best party scene? On the island, they have a big party, but... But it's not really a... He's getting prepped. I mean, it, mm. I mean, he has a party of one. You could have a party of one where he's, like, having, like, a dinner by himself while wearing a fancy new suit. I'll say party for one at the Pierre. But also, yeah, I was going to say party on the Waponies whenever he gets spanked with a fish. <laughs> it's, I mean, it's, it's, it's a wedding party. Short, short, very true. For best line, I'm going to nominate the one that we said before, the, you know, I love you, but it's a bad time. Uh, gotta go. Have you also got thank you for my life, and you've got you look terrible, Mister Waturi. What's I mean, if you have to pick one, what's your what's what's the the one that stands out? Probably the timing stinks one because I think in ten months' time, whenever you guys get around to looking back at all of these nominees and you read the line, I think that one will probably hit you the most to where you'll remember the exact intonation. Whereas thank yep. you for my life, you'll be like, oh yeah, it just seems kind of like the general mood of that film, though. Yeah. How do you feel about that, Mike? You you good with that one? I'm good with that one. Best freakout. When he uh, goes back to work, shark attacks freak out, man. Oh, well, shark attacks good, but I'm gonna say I'll say uh... the one at, maybe the one at work is a bit longer, right? It kind of escalates. Yeah. It, he does a thing with the prosthetic. <laughs> Going back to work with the brain cloud. Best soundtrack slash theme? Yes or no? Yes. Best love story, of course, and Meg Ryan, and then best non Hanks actor, male or female, of course, Meg Ryan, and I also put a dot dot dot. I would say you guys are going to get, well, yeah, Meg Ryan's definitely the best that she's in any of her Hank's uh, Ryan connections, but it's just like, man, you, Ossie Davis is so good in this movie. Is she the, I mean, because like Keanu has both Winona and Charlize to certain extents, like, is there somebody who's going to be more of a connection to Hank's than Meg Ryan, or is Meg Ryan his, like, leading lady opposite him most of his career? Um, I mean, I can't think of one off the top of my head, and I'm sure there's somebody that's outdone. Uh, Meg Ryan at this point. Yeah, but I'll, uh, how many Julia Roberts does he have? Larry Crown and Charlie Wilson's War there and together. Yeah, I was trying to think if there was a third in order to like, match. I'm saying there's probably some sneak attacks in there. But as far as romantic interests, no. All right, well, we are we are kicking things off with the, the Meg Ryan connection there. So we have 10 nominees. Best film, best role, best ensemble, best dance scene, party scene. That's two different ones. Best line, best freak out, best soundtrack theme, best love story, and best non-Hanks actor female for Miss Meg Ryan. Well, Greg, thank you so much. And I have one more very important question for you. I need to, this, I need to, I, I tease this at the very top. I need to describe a dilemma. And I think, Mike, this is going to maybe question the integrity of our, of what we do and how we do this. But, so there's another podcast on their network that is in hiatus right now, Tub Talk. And I was talking to the Tub Talk guys about this show. And one of them, my friend Bob, put together a reading list, books for me to read next year. And on that list is Bonfire of the Vanities. And I was talking to another friend about Bonfire of the Vanities. I was like, yeah, I haven't read it yet, but I have to watch the movie in two weeks for Hanks. He's like, don't watch the movie. He's like, it's going to ruin the book. So the question is, bringing it up on the air, do we skip that so that I can savor the book 
and come back to it, or do we cover it in the order it's supposed to go? You cover the order it's supposed to go. You make personal yeah. sacrifice for the thing that you're passionate about doing. I like playing video games, but if I got an edit I got to finish, guess what? I'm at the office finishing an edit and not playing video games. And as leisurely and as enjoyable as that book can be, that's on you, bud. You took down this task, and you have to own up to it and stay true to it. Okay. Sorry to say it. I'm also pretty sure that I'm going to be able to forget most of the movie within a week and, you know, let alone a year and a half till I read the book. From what I hear, it's mostly forgettable anyway, but that's just from what I hear. I've, I've not seen it yet. We will find out together, but okay. I just want to sort of put that into the world, sort of the, the moral dilemma that I am facing and see what comes of it, but yeah, okay. Bonfire the Vanities, up next. <laughs> Hanks the Memories. Confirmed right now. Confirmed right now. Well, Greg, thank you so much for joining us on Hanks the Memories. Um, if people want to find you, where can they find you online? Uh, you can Find me on Twitter. It's at the McLennan. It's M-A-C-L-E-N-N-A-N. And I will talk to you about Joe versus the Volcano or anything else you feel like you need to talk to me about. I have a very important question for you that I've never asked you before, and I don't know. I probably should have. Do you capitalize the L in your last name or no? I do. Okay. That's what I thought, but I wasn't I wasn't entirely sure. But okay, good. I've been doing it right, I think. I appreciate it. I hope this makes the podcast. For all things Hanks the Memories, including the 17 episodes we've done before this one, plus all the other Cruise Club episodes and everything that Greg has been on, and even the things he hasn't, you can go to cageclub.me, facebook.com slash cageclub, or at cageclubpod on Twitter and Instagram. Email us, hanks at cageclub.me. Come back next week on our Cruise Club podcast for Jerry Maguire, Show Me the Money, and then in two weeks right here on Hanks the Memories for Bonfire of the Vanities. I'm Joey Lewandowski. And I'm Mike Manzi. That was Greg McClendon of the Draft House, and we will see you in two weeks right here on Hanks for the Memory.